We have some interesting expressions in our culture when it comes to the ways that children resemble their parents. Well, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Or, she's a spitting image of her mother. Or, like father, like son. Or you can tell that they're cut from the same piece of cloth. Or, he certainly is a chip off the old block. Have you ever taken the time to figure out the ways that you're like your mom? And the ways that you're like your dad? My mother was a voracious reader. She would go to the library every other week and come home with a stack of books and tomes that thick. Thousand-page books that she could read one of those in a day. Voracious reader, speed reader, thousand words a minute, and she loved to read. Well, in our family, all of us children are readers, but I read the most compared to the rest of the family. And I read on a variety of subjects, and I love to read, and I enjoy reading. I'm not in Pastor James's league, but I do read a lot, and I'm not quite like my mother, but I can speed read because I took a class in college on speed reading, so I can do it when I want to do it, uh, and when it isn't as important a subject for me, then I can do speed reading, uh, but Not quite the way my mom could read, but I do read a lot. Now, when it comes to my father, I have less to go on because my father passed away three months before my sixth birthday. And if some of you know uh, my grandson in this church, Isaiah Gant, in three weeks he will be as old as I was when my father passed away. So it puts it in perspective. In fact, his age this weekend is the age that I was when my father went into the hospital for the last days and weeks of his life. Now, my father was an outdoorsman. He loved to hunt and fish, and he was good at it. And uh, that's why I kind of take pride in it myself. My father was so into it that he used to keep a fishing pole and a tackle box in his 1954 Chevrolet truck. So in the spring, when fishing season was open through the summer and into the early fall, he would stop sometimes on his way home from work and fish a little stream or hit a little lake and make a few casts, wet a line a little bit. I have memories of him coming home with his black lunch bucket, you know, flipped open with grass inside it and and a limit's worth of brook trout in there. Or he'd have a stick with three or four walleyes hanging on it. And he would bring that home uh, in the fall and into the winter. He would carry a shotgun in his vehicle and a 22. And if he was coming home and he would whack a grouse or two on the way home or he would shoot uh, a, a, a rabbit on the way home or two. And when there was daylight in the early fall or in the wintertime, he would do those things and bring that home. I have memories also uh, of him in his hunting seasons. In fact, uh, every single year in, since he started hunting in the late 1940s until he was 29 years of age in 1965, which was his last hunting season, he got his buck every single year. And that's saying something when you live in northern Minnesota, and that's back when there weren't deer at all. There aren't deer there now, but there weren't deer hardly at all because they'd over-harvested for so many years leading up to that time frame. So he was very good at his craft. The only time he didn't get a buck was the day that my older sister, Darla, was born uh, on the third morning of hunting season in 1958. The only year he didn't get uh, a deer. He, uh, my father also trapped in the wintertime. And uh, when he was laid off, he would do that. And he also would regularly ice fish. And by the time he was 29 years of age, he had speared nine northerns between 20 and 29 pounds. 
And once he even caught a 22-pound northern through the ice with a hook and line. But the only problem was his little 8-inch or 6-inch auger hole wasn't big enough. So he laid on the ice. He was by himself, his arm fully through the ice, holding that northern by the gills. And he chiseled with his other hand the hole to get it big enough so that he could land that particular fish. My father just came alive when he was in the outdoors. And so do I. Now, we've been studying 1 John for a month now, and the Apostle John has noted the appearance of false teachers in the churches at Ephesus and in the surrounding region. And he told us last week's, in last week's text that this was a sign that we're living in the last days. Well, with this being the case, we should all be longing for the return of Jesus Christ. And the desire should produce in us a heartfelt commitment to live for Jesus in the here and now. Now, the apostle reminds us in today's text that when believers exhibit the character of God in their behavior, they show that they are children of God. In other words, we are chips off the old block. And the key verse in this pericope here that we're looking at today is 1 John 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. That's the key verse. And in these first two chapters of 1 John, we learn so far in this sermon series that the emphasis has been on fellowship. A Christian, it teaches, is one who has fellowship with God and fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. A Christian is one who practices righteousness and who is known for their love, which we're going to learn more about in a couple of weeks as well. But in 1 John chapters 3, 4, and 5, the emphasis here now turns to being children of God. It's actually going to keep repeating this phrase over and over again, being born of God. And since we're God's children, then we're to live righteously and again, love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice verse 29, that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 9, no one who is born of God. Chapter 4, verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ is born of God. Chapter 4, for everyone born of God. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We're going to see this phrase over and over now. And what the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God teaches us now is the shift in 1 John is that a person who's a child of God will live righteously. In fact, such a person will stand before the Lord when he returns in confidence. Now, the text before us today is going to spend a lot of time focusing on Christ's first coming and the work that Jesus accomplished in that. But it's also going to look ahead to the second coming and how we should be living in this interim period before Jesus comes back. Now we get to our text. And verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. When Jesus appears and we're before him, how are we going to feel at that moment? Now, did you notice the particular mood of that verb, confident there? 
It says may be confident, or some of your translations might say might be confident. This is a subjunctive mood here in the original language, which is a mood of doubtful assertion. And the word for confidence here means boldness, means freedom and courage. So whether we have this boldness or this confidence, this freedom, this courage when Jesus appears depends upon our abiding in Jesus. That's what verse 28 says. And in verse, it says, if we continue in him. And verse 19, 29 says, if you know what is, that he is righteous and you know that everyone who does what is right. So we're to continue in him, we're to abide in him, and we're to do what is right, which is abiding and remaining in him. If we do that, we will stand before him with confidence. You know, in my sophomore year of high school, the first week of May, I skipped school with four of my buddies. And I wasn't a Christian at the time. I didn't become a Christian until about nine or ten months later in January of the next year. But I was starting to run with the wrong crowd. And of course, we did what young guys do. We went out horsing around, did a little drinking, and uh, thought we were so cool to skip school. And what do you do, though? You got no place to go. And you don't really want to be seen because you think you're getting away with this and you're pulling this off. Well, we, we you know, did different things around the area. And then we went into town just to go into some stores and that sort of thing. What we didn't realize was, though, that the shop teacher, the industrial arts teacher, had supervision duties for the parking lot. So he saw four knuckleheads jump in the car with a friend and leave. And we had teachers that were supervising kids getting off the school buses. And they saw us get off the bus but not come into the school. There were four teachers turned us in before we even, school even started. Think these people are skipping school. Then I was, thought I was so cool. We're uptown. We're doing things. My mother's at work at the, she worked at the evening smellygram at the time. Excuse me, evening telegram. Did I say smellygram? Anyway, she worked there and uh, she had to go deliver ads to all these different businesses. Who did she see cruising around town? The same knuckleheads who thought they were so cool. So three of us five, when we got back to school, because everybody had to get back on the buses, and three of us had to go to track practice. So we went to track practice, and uh, we thought we, were, we, were, we just had this whole thing covered. And the first thing the track coach tells us is, you three need to go to the office. Oh boy. We knew things weren't good at that moment. And the principal was also my pole vaulting coach. So he would come down and work with me a couple days a week in, in track practice. And he had coached in a previous school that he had uh, worked at. Uh, he had coached two state champions before. So I had a lot of respect for this guy. And he had taken a, a, a real personal interest in me. And can you imagine how hard it was for me to look him in the eyes and to see the disappointment that he had in me. I can tell you what I was feeling that day when I faced him and, and facing the consequences for my actions. It wasn't confidence. It wasn't boldness or freedom. And it certainly wasn't courage. Look at verse 1 here of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You know, we're moving on now in the, in the passage in how the world treats Christians in this interim period between the first and second comings of Jesus. And John wants readers to know that the approval of the world 
is not something that should be desired. In fact, we should fear the world's acceptance. And yes, it's pretty unpleasant to be unknown to the world, to be a nobody in the world around us. But rest assured, as the text tells us here, that we are loved by God. And God's love for us is unique. That's what this passage is trying to emphasize. What great love the Father has for us. Or some translations will say, what manner of love the Father has for us. I want you to understand that this text could be translated, behold, what peculiar, out of this world kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. Look at verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And this dear friends is literally uh, beloved. That's what it's talking about. The loved ones of God. And then it starts there with an adverb of time, which is now, saying, now we are children of God. And what we will be when Christ returns is a bit of a mystery. It hasn't completely been made known to us. But we will be like Him. And the Bible teaches that God dwells in unapproachable light. That God exists in majesty, in glory, and splendor. And Jesus is going to come back in that very embodiment. And I can't even explain that to you as a mere human being. But I can say this. The Bible says we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Verse 3, All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. See, this hope that we have of the return of Christ and being like Him is what should inspire us to sin less and less, to put away every defilement and aim to be like Jesus. And this is how we can stand in confidence at Jesus' coming. Well, our translation, our text here, excuse me, continues on. The apostle is telling us not only that disciples of Christ will have confidence at Jesus' second coming, but such people will also live out their earthly lives in opposition to sin. And guess what the greatest obstacle is that's out there to standing before the Lord's presence with confidence and in freedom? You know what it is? It's sin. Verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And the word here for sin means to miss the mark. And lawlessness refers to an intentional active rebellion against God's will. And there's a connection to these early church false teachers here. They taught that Christians didn't have to worry about sin because only the body sinned and what the body did in no way infected the spirit. Some of them went so far as to teach that sin is actually natural to the body because the body is sinful. And they actually believed that they were being lawful that they were being good people because the spirit was undefiled. But they didn't see sin as lawlessness. And John points that out here, that that's exactly what it is. It is active rebellion against God. And isn't it amazing if a person just stops to listen to all of the rationalizations that people use, and even that we may use, floating around uh, uh, for sin? 
Well, I act this way because of you. Or, you're the reason I drink. Or, you're driving me nuts. You're the one that's driving me crazy. I have a lot of stress in my life. That's why I indulge. Or, my spouse won't meet my needs, so obviously I have to go elsewhere. People say the wildest things to support their sin. Verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. In Jesus' first coming, his purpose of the sinless one's mission was to take away our sin. And again, notice here that it says, might take away our sin, or may take away our sin. We're encountering once again this subjunctive mood in the verse here of doubtful assertion because Jesus has done this for us. He's paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. But that doesn't mean we're going to enjoy that if we don't respond because we have a part to play. We have to accept Jesus' help with our sin problem. We have to receive him as Savior and Lord of our lives. You know, when I was in seminary, I learned this truth in a very profound way from a fellow seminarian who was a Chinese brother in Christ. And he taught us that in the Mandarin language, uh, you know, they have different characters. And many times one character will be over another character and it'll tell you what that particular thing is. Well, they have a word in the Chinese language for righteousness. And it, it is the character of people. And it's the combination of a character of a lamb. And the lamb is over people. And what is absolutely amazing to me is that the Chinese language was developed many, 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 many centuries before Jesus ever came to earth. And it was in no way influenced by Western cultures or Judeo-Christian concepts. But in one simple word in the language of China... It explains the plan of salvation. The lamb over people. You know, it's what the Bible says. The human dilemma is our own human sinfulness. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we've got this gulf out there between us and God. That's what sin causes. But the Bible says that God has a plan for that. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the conclusion of this discussion regarding these false teachers teaching that sin doesn't matter because it's just the body and not the spirit is found in verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And again, the literal rendering here is no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning or continues to sin. And the contrast is loud and clear. Verse 28, continue in him. Verse 6 here, live in him. That's the same word, remain in him, abide in him. Verse 9 in this chapter 3, no one is born of God will continue in sin. Okay, because God's seed remains, abides in them. That concept of continuing and remaining is, is repeated over and over in this passage. And the message of verse 6 the, is this. The more we remain in Christ, 
the more sinless we become. The flip side of this is what these false teachers were doing who continually practice sin. They, they have neither seen Jesus, John says, nor do they know him. In a nutshell, no one know, who knows Jesus practices sin. And those who practice sin do not know Jesus. Now, it's not saying you don't sin as a believer, but it isn't the habit it isn't the practice of people who are abiding and remaining in Christ. It isn't their goal when they get up in the morning and say, all right, what sins can I commit today? You know, that isn't what a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who's truly a follower of Christ, doesn't get up and do that each and every day. It's a constant battle against sin because we're remaining in him. Christ is sinless and his work on the cross and in this world is in opposition to sin. And to know Jesus is to deny sin. To know Jesus is to live in opposition to sin. To know Jesus is to treat sin as an outlaw. And this is a big part of our mission. Look at verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And the context specifically is, don't let anybody lead you astray on this matter of sin. Don't let it happen. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, our Savior, our Lord. So we're trying to do what is right all the time. And John says here as well that someone who lives righteously, this person, this disciple and follower of Jesus, bears witness then by doing that to their relationship with Christ. In other words, we show what camp we're in when we do that. You know, it's pretty easy to think in our culture right now about what camps people are in because the dividing lines are so clear. Oh, they're a vaxxer. They're an anti-vaxxer. Oh, that's a Trump supporter. No, there's a Biden supporter. Oh, oh, they are promoters of critical race theory. Oh, those people are against critical race theory. Oh, they're all for green energy. And oh, these people want us to return to our energy independence as Americans because we have the resources to do that in our own land right now with fossil fuels. Oh, it's so easy to find the dividing lines. God's Word tells us, though, that there's a clear dividing line, and that's not it. That's not it. Look at verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This is the real dividing line. The one who makes sin a habit belongs to the devil. And there's no halfway house here between God and the devil. You're either on God, the devil's side or you're on God's side. There's no halfway house in between. It doesn't work that way. And it has been Satan's plan from the very beginning to upset God's creation. Number one, he wants to morally entice people to sin. Number two, to, he wants to intellectually seduce people into error. And the third thing the evil one wanted to do was to create this fallen world of sickness, disease, famine, and war. But what does the end of verse 8 say there? The reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. And that's strong language that used here, that's used here, but it doesn't mean annihilation because Satan's still at work uh, every day. To destroy means to loose. It means to undo or pull down, to break up. Satan's power and weapons have been 
you know, severely impaired by the work of Christ. But the evil one is still a formidable foe for believers. And yes, the devil thought he had the world all bound up, all shackled in sin, but Christ came to set us free. Christ came to be our escape plan, to deliver us from the penalty and the power of sin. Look at verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to undo the work of the devil. Because of this, Christians cannot compromise with sin or compromise with the devil. We are the offspring of God. We're the seed of God. You know, we must understand today as well that God not only forgives our sins, but he has adopted us. And through a dramatic series of events, we go from being condemned orphans with no hope to being adopted children of God with confidence. Here is what it took place. We are, we are sinners, full of rebellion, who one day all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. On account of God's justice, God cannot dismiss our sin. But on account of his love, he cannot dismiss us. So in an act that stunned the heavens, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, setting us free from the penalty, and if we choose to follow him, the power of sin as well. And on the cross, God's justice and God's love were equally honored. The story, though, doesn't end there. Listen to Romans 8, 15 and 16. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You know, I believe, you know, it's certainly, I, I, let me say this, it certainly would have been enough for God just to cleanse us from our sins. But God did more. He adopted us into his family. He became to us, we be, he invited us to, to become his children, to call him our father. That's what it's saying. Abba, father. You know, I believe adoptive parents understand this more than other people. And that's no offense to biological parents out there because I'm one of them. And for us, biological parents, we often decide when we want to have children, and then many times the children come along. And there are other times we didn't make that decision, completely make that decision. We made some decisions, but not completely, and they just show up. And three of our four children were not planned, and two of them you know very well, Bethany Gant and, and our son, Pastor Nathan. Those two were two of the three that were not planned. So, I know all about unplanned pregnancies, even though God plans them. I, I knew about unplanned pregnancies. But what I have never heard of in my life is an unplanned adoption. This is why I believe adoptive parents understand God's passion in adopting us. They know what it's like to long to have children. 
to search for them, to set out on a mission to find them, to spend all kinds of time and effort and tens of thousands of dollars traveling halfway across the country or even around the world to find them and then to take responsibility for a child who may have had a checkered past and potentially a a dubious future and you're going to grab them in that moment. And if there's anyone who understands the passion of God for his children, it is someone who has rescued a child like that from despair and invited them into their family, invited them into their home. And this is what God has done for us. See, God sought you. He found you. And he paid the price for your adoption. And then he said, will you accept this gift? And if you accept it, he says, then you can come home. Come home with me. This is why children of God desire to live righteously. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up at this time. And as they're coming, just let me say, this is today the proclamation of God's word. And uh, all God's people said, Amen.